Good evening. I'm back from Florida. And drugs, that's the big story of the day. Now, look, there's no question we have a very serious drug problem in this country. The use of illegal drugs is of a scale that is very hard to believe. A recent report suggests that up to one million people take occasionally, or sometimes regularly, cocaine. To me, that's a nonsense. I'd be surprised if the number in London wasn't somewhere near that. I'm astonished by just how many people use this drug. And yesterday, we have to give credit to the Sunday Times for exposing that drugs are very much at the heart of the establishment. And they listed out a number of toilets within the House of Commons where traces of cocaine were found. And uh, they were offices very, very close, ironically, to Boris Johnson's office and, indeed, Pretty Patel's office too. So drugs are everywhere. And I'm tempted to say to Boris Johnson and Pretty Patel, as they launch a big national 10-year programme to deal with the drug problem, well, once you've sorted out the drug problem in the Palace of Westminster, perhaps I might start to take you rather more seriously on dealing with the drug problem across the whole of the country. And here's Boris. He's been out on patrol. There he is, dressed up in a police uniform. Looks like they must have found a fairly big jacket for him, it seems to me. I was expecting to see him up in the north of England uh, with families who've been without power for the last 10 days. But no, he has been out there on patrol with the police. And I guess that's the photo op that he wants. Uh, Pretty Patel is talking tough. An article in today's Daily Mail suggesting uh, that those that are found to be recreationally using drugs like cocaine and other Class A drugs could have their driving licences or their passports removed from them. Yes, isn't our Home Secretary good at talking tough? Is this all for real? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think the Conservatives are in trouble. They're down in the polls. The approval rating of both the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary are going down rapidly. And I think this war on drugs is an attempt to reach out to their base... And I also, my instinct immediately that I saw this story was I don't believe for one moment they'd even be allowed to take away people's passports or people's driving licences or forms of ID, given, of course, that the one part of Brexit that wasn't done and never gets talked about is we're still signatories to the European Convention on Human Rights. It's the same message Pretty's been giving us about dealing with the problems in the Channel but not actually having the legal means to do so. So, my debate this evening, is the Tory war on drugs real? Love to know what you think. Do you think they're genuine? Do you think, like me, it is cynical political manoeuvring? Let me know your thoughts, gbviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet your opinions in to on Twitter at gbnews. And, of course, you can send in your Barrage the Farage questions for the end of the show. Well, joining me to debate this is Diana Constantinidi, a human rights barrister for 33 Bedford Row, and musician and recovering addict Laurie Wright, um, who's been helping other addicts to go to rehab. So, Laurie, we know there's a very serious problem here, and we'll talk about that and perhaps what some of the remedies might be. But I want to begin, if I can, Diana. Yes. <clears throat> OK, it's a big political moment for the Prime Minister, for the Home Secretary... And instinctively, when people hear the government's taking drugs seriously, the majority of the population say, well, yeah, actually, 
you know, they should be doing this, because, I mean, there's barely a family in the country that hasn't been touched by this problem in some way. But the tough talk... It is indeed tough talk, isn't it? And yeah. this very much reminds me of this ancient Greek myth, actually, of Plutarch, um, that they will be tossing the Spartan babies if they do not fit for the future duty to be soldiers. So it feels like this tough talk is about tossing the drug users into the abyss of those disproportionate measures. Um, so, indeed, those are tough talk. And the question is, is this a war or peace? So we really need to consider this very carefully, especially from a human rights perspective. Yeah, I mean, we every year we hear the war on drugs, and we've heard it ever since Tony Blair's time, and every year we've been losing the war on drugs because more and more, it seems to me, more and more people uh, use, use this stuff. And I, and I have to say, working in London, as I have done you know, for nearly all of my working life, I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite shocked you know, the percentage of young people I know who do or have taken Class A drugs at some point in their lives. Just explain to me then, you know, we are, for good or bad, and you may take a different view on this, but for good or bad, uh, we have a Human Rights Act in this country which incorporated the European Convention yes. of Human Rights into British law back in Tony Blair's time in the late 1990s. That's very correct, Nigel. And you did say there was still a signature of the European Convention of Human yep. Rights. And also to the Human Rights Act 1998 that actually addresses all these issues. So the first one that we need to look into is that the passport and the driving licence, that's an important piece of documentation. And if someone would take that from you, it means that um, you know, it, it can become a property for someone else. So this is a very serious statement to make, and we cannot take this lightly. Saying that... Um, the question is now, driving licence, how does this fit into the drug war? What I mean by that is, driving licence, if we're dealing with the driving offence, yes, fair enough, but we're not dealing with the driving offence here. Well, the idea, I guess, is, or the thinking is, well, number one, it's the mood music. We're going to be really tough. Um, <laughs> but I guess the idea is that you punish users uh, uh, to such an extent that you frighten other people from using this stuff, and I guess that's what it is. And I guess this is aimed uh, at what they would say middle-class, comfortable drug use, you know, people who might lose their jobs over it or whatever it may be. But under the Human Rights Act, would they be able to do this? I believe not, Nigel, and I'm saying that's because if you would remove or if you would confiscate... So the question is now, under which legal framework would they actually deal with this matter? So they haven't addressed yet the issue about is it going to address the first-time offenders? Can we actually apply the... Um, uh, can we actually apply and to see how long this sentence will be in place? So they haven't addressed the legal issue. And that actually infringes the first human rights about we need to know what the law is about it. So not just about talk. Um, but secondly, this is a disproportionate measure. And that's the Human Rights Act. It needs to be um, appropriate to address the problem in question, which is not... So if, for argument's sake, uh, some people did have their driving licences or passports taken from them because they've been found to be in possession of a quantity of cocaine, for argument's sake, uh, you as a human rights barrister would be expecting a phone call fairly quickly. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> Could be very good for your business. But it, but it does rather back up my feeling and my thinking uh, that this is all political posturing. What is for real, Laurie, uh, is that, I, I, you know... This stuff's everywhere. Mm. Uh, and the fact that it's actually there, you know, 11 locations. Out of 12. In yeah. the palace of yeah. Westminster. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think there was a report a few years ago about the London sewers and just the sheer 
amount of cocaine. Yeah, well, it's actually in the water as a result of it, isn't it? They found minuscule uh, amounts that couldn't be eradicated as a result of that. But um, it's it doesn't shock me. You were saying about how shocked you were, and I've been around it for so many years, and even in rehab with people from all walks of life, um, you know, from, you know, government officials to police officers, therapists, musicians like myself, um, teachers. It's, drugs are just everywhere. They're a part of society. And to continue to um, punish as opposed to look at the mental health aspect, because we know it's a mental health problem, well, maybe we don't. That's, well, that's the problem. Well, maybe we don't know it's... Perhaps problem. taking drugs is what leads to mental health problems. Yeah, but why do we take drugs excessively in the first place? Underlying mental health problems, feelings of inadequacy... Um, do you really think so? Yeah, generally. I mean, I mean, isn't it rather like uh, legal drugs? Uh, alcohol? It is. Uh, tobacco? I mean, no-one starts off as a problem drinker. You know, they start off drinking because it's what people do and it makes you feel good. Um, isn't, isn't most drug use a bit like that? Yeah, but not, yeah, not everyone will become an alcoholic who's a, um, you know, a drinker and not everyone who uh, recreationally takes cocaine or anything else will become an addict. Um, so it's about looking compassionately at that, I think, of the de of what, for instance, what I think we should do is look... Um, uh, what, like, say, Portugal have done, for instance, in 2001... Well, that's a decriminalisation programme. Yeah. And then, um, well, one of the good things that's come... The only good thing I can see that's come of this is more money will be put into uh, rehabilitating people um, under Boris Johnson's new suggestions. But to then kind of double-edged sword that with harsher penalties, it's like 1950s dad getting the belt out, and that just does not... Help but if you, an addict. All right, but, but, but you know, just just put this to you. You know, if at the moment, if you're a middle class professional living in London, for argument's sake, recreationally taking cocaine once a month or whatever it may be, if you're currently caught mm. in, in an environment like that, you know, you just get a caution. Mm -hmm. But that's what happens right now. Mm. And what Patel is saying in this article, and what Johnson is backing up, is that. You know, if, if now getting caught isn't a caution uh, and it is a removal of passports, of driving licences, perhaps, uh, perhaps even a threat to your job, that would stop people taking it recreationally, wouldn't it? Well, no. I, no? No, I, I just disagree. I mean, I can only talk from the addict perspective that nothing would have stopped me. And also... Think so, but, that's so, you, but, that's but also not as an addict. If we look at, say, Prohibition America, where they made alcohol illegal, the recreational users still went and found moonshine and speakeasies, for instance. Um, and the same, you know, the same thing just goes on. What, whatever, whatever happens, people will find it. I, but, I know. But, but, but there are <laughs> people watching this now, all right? There are people watching this now mm. who have got teenage kids. Yeah. Right? And they're going to say listening to you, if we listen to Laurie, if we decriminalise drugs, that will, that, that will make our kids even more likely to take them. Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily... If you, Well, for instance, if you look at Portugal, their numbers have actually decreased since in the last uh, two decades. 
of um, people aged 15 to 25 using drugs and they decriminalise. It's about just say no didn't work. Like, what do you do as a teenager? You go, oh, I shouldn't do that. Don't press the red button. It's that rebellion. It's that I shouldn't be there doing that. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know from personal experience, when I was in my teens, it was, you know, you shouldn't do that. Why? It's exciting. Let's find out. But to, uh, get, to get people... I mean, you know, you've obviously been through quite a bad cycle with this mm-hmm. and you've gone into rehab and you're out, you're playing music again, mm-hmm. getting out there, gigging, doing well, which is great, and I'm very pleased to hear that story. But to get people into rehab, they, they first have to get themselves into quite a bad place, don't they? Yeah. I mean, rock, rock bottom um, would be where you would have those realisations or, or many rock bottoms, as I found, before I realised. Um, so, yeah, it has to come from the person to choose to want to go to get the re- rehabilitation. But when they want to go, we need to make sure that that is in place um, I would would argue state-funded because people need to go now. The waiting lists are very long. um, And by the time you've gone on this waiting list and convinced yourself you're okay after a few days or weeks abstinence, you would end up back in the same same cycle. And unless the money's there from family members and or whoever else, other funding. Right. And, and, and rehab has worked in your case, but it, it did, yeah. But I'm sure in many cases it doesn't. Yes, it doesn't always work. Um, it doesn't always work, no. No, I, no, no, I'm sure that's right. Well, mm. you know, I've listened to what you've had to say. I, I have to say, I have thought myself in the past, uh, particularly with cannabis, you know, that maybe a Royal Commission into this, where we do study mm. what's really happened in Portugal, might be a good idea. Mm. Um, I don't think that position has majority support in the country. I think most people still think that it should be against the law. And what we've got is a government here, I think, in a sense, Diana, talking tougher in terms of penalties than any government's talked before. And we've already said that it just isn't going to happen all the while we're signed up to the Human Rights Act and the ECHR and everything else. It's just... This, this is a big push. You know, they're in trouble, they're going down on the polls, they're doing this... But just how much time, you know, police time, court time, prison spaces, I mean, this is a real blight on... It's a real blight on the whole criminal justice system too, isn't it? It is indeed. And and listening to you and and to your personal circumstances, it just made me realise that the cases that I've dealt with, with people that they actually used drug in the past and would have been prosecuted, um, every case is so different. So it's about addressing all those points, everything that you just mentioned as well, in their sentencing guidelines. So definitely there needs to be a lot of work to be done in order to be able to address all those issues. So it's not just one way. It has many colours. Yeah, no, thank you both. Well, look, it is a very serious debate. It is a massive and growing problem in this country. And I'm sure a lot, a lot of Conservative voters out there have woken up this morning, heard these announcements and thought, hooray! At last, Boris and Prissy are doing something. But I think, as we've explained to you, actually, because of the laws we have in the land in in place right now, it simply isn't going to happen. And I genuinely do not believe this Tory war on drugs is real. I think it's being done for short-term advantage. Is the 10-year Tory war on drugs real? Is it really going to happen or is it just political posturing because they're in trouble in the polls? I asked for some feedback from you and Peter, Fargibi News, says 
we actually have a crime problem instigated by the illegal drug trade. Well, this is perhaps the argument that was being made before the break, that a lot of crime is in order to get money to buy drugs. So maybe there is an argument for a different approach. One viewer says, it's Parliament's war on their own drugs. Well, look, we've got cabinet ministers, of course, who admit to having taken Class A drugs in the past. And I, yes, I'm with you. Look, if they can't clean up the drug problem in the Palace of Westminster, why on earth should we take them seriously about dealing with the drug problem across the wider country? Jackie says, if the government was serious about cracking down on drugs in the House of Commons, they would implement regular drug tests just like many other employers do. I can't see MPs liking that very much. Theo says, this war on drugs is a distraction on the migrant crises in the Channel. Well, it might be, but they're offering the same solutions, none of which are possible, all the while we're signed up with the Human Rights Act to European law on this. But that's something they will never, ever admit to. And it seems, actually, they very rarely get questioned on. Steve on GB Views says, this is just a deflect from the inaction of this government, apart from, of course, the chipping away at our freedoms. Well, talking of the chipping away at our freedoms. Now, it was Salford. It was early afternoon. Uh, and Elliot Batty was there. And he filmed this video. Uh, and it is actually somewhat extraordinary to think. And yes, I know that masks are back and we've got to wear them on the underground and we've got to wear them at transport hubs and all the rest of it. But there are actually quite a large number of people out there that are exempt from wearing masks and there's no law that compels them to prove their exemption. So let's have a quick look at what Elliot filmed a couple of days back. Right, I'm catching some video. It's been recorded as well. It's been recorded. Okay. So, why are you stopping me? I'm trying to eat a Subway and this man's harassing me. Okay. For what? Are you going to listen? No, I'm not listening. You've asked me a question. So What's the question? question? I, no, I don't need you to answer my question. Right. I'm trying to eat my Subway and you're harassing me. Right. Okay. So, the law at the minute. No, it's not the law. Right. At the minute, the law at the minute. It's not the law, is it? Is it the law? No, it's not yes, the law. It it's recommended. You need to wear a mask. It's recommended if you are not exempt. Right. I'm exempt, so I don't need a mask. So, you're telling me you're so exempt. mind your business, yeah? Mind right. your business. You don't need to ask so me if I'm exempt. It's your attitude. No, you don't need to ask me. It's, it's not your business. What I'm going to do with you now, yeah, I'm going to ask you why you're exempt in, in terms of... You don't of need to worry. It's my medical right. history. I'm not That's asking fine. your medical history. So don't worry. No, you won't. No, you won't. I'll be going. No, you won't. You don't even have your mask on properly. Look at this guy. Right. He's got his nose out and he's trying to right. tell me to wear a mask right. in a subway when I'm exempt to... for right. asthma. So right. mind your business Listen to me. and let me go on my journey. Well, I'm joined now by Elliot Bassey, who filmed that video. Elliot, good evening to you. He's gone. I don't believe it. I'm disappointed, because I wanted to find out. Let's have one more go. One more go. Elliot, can you hear me, mate? Hello. Hello there. So... Yep, I can hear you. It was a subway. The police had been eating in there. You'd gone in to eat in there. Were they suggesting that you ate wearing a face mask? Yep. I, I, and was there any reason? I'm guessing so. I guess that's the point, yeah. I mean, is there any reason why they picked on you? 
the only really excuse I can think is because I'm a young gentleman and maybe they thought they could force some power onto me. Right. And so you claimed your exemption, uh, and there are plenty of people with plenty of medical reasons yep. for being exempt. Elliot, what does it make you feel? I mean, they told you that you could be arrested or that a fine would come in the post, and you had exposed this video and it's had terrific pickup. Have you heard any more from Greater Manchester Police? I don't have a crime reference number. I've not had an email. I'm catching something. I've not had a call. No contact whatsoever. Why are you stopping me? Okay. And Elliot, finally, and I know we haven't got the best of lines, but finally, how does it make you feel about our country, the way you were treated there? Um, I don't want to jump ship and say anything too extreme, but to me, it reminds me of how Nazi Germany started. I, well, that's quite a strong comment, Elliot, but I, I, I understand you're upset about it, and I want to thank you for posting that video and for coming on tonight with me here on GB News and talking about it, because it is utterly ridiculous. Thank you, Elliot. Well, Elliot's analysis there may be a little bit harsh, but I have to say, I don't want to live in a country where the police behave like that. I think it's absolutely awful. Now, here is a proper, a proper what the Farage moment. Thank goodness we are out of the European Union because it's pretty clear the direction in which they're going. Austria and Germany have both now declared that vaccinations will be mandatory. And Ursula von der Leyen, there she is, and, of course, she succeeded my old friend Jean-Claude Juncker. She is the president of the European Commission. She is the most powerful person in the European Union, and she now has come out publicly urging mandatory jabs. It's only a matter of time before this becomes official EU policy of that I am pretty convinced. And the reason I say that I'm pleased we're out of the European Union is I'm pretty confident that we will not go down that route. And the government can encourage people all they like to go out and get vaccines and get boosters, uh, but it is people's right to choose not to do so. I believe that very, very strongly. And I think the creation of a two-tier society, the jabbed, versus the jab knots is a very, very dangerous thing. So Ursula von der Leyen now pushing hard for mandatory vaccinations. Now, I'm sure that it's purely coincidental, but Ursula von der Leyen, in her declaration of interests, states that her husband, Heiko von der Leyen, is part of pharmaceutical biotechnology. That's the sector that he works in. And specifically, he works for Orgenesis, Inc., an American company who specialise in cell therapy development. And even before they fully developed their COVID vaccine platform, I'm really pleased to announce that this firm is doing very, very well. Yes, Orgenesis have reported a 425% increase in their revenues for the third quarter. Hmm. Well, in my opinion, I believe regulators ought to check this out, don't you?
The channel crisis was mentioned um, a few minutes ago, and it's been quiet today. The weather's not been right for the dinghies. But a tweet that was put out by The Sun's political correspondent, Jonathan Riley, says this. The Home Office spent £10,664.27 on Domino's pizzas to feed small boat arrivals in Dover. And that was in the month of September alone. I mean, can you believe it? And I did, I have to say, somebody uh, who's a viewer of GB News did tip me the wink about this, that it was a regular thing, that Domino's pizzas were being brought in to the processing centre in Dover and, indeed, many other well-known food chains as well. Um, it's just a very small part of the overall price we're paying for what is going on in the English Channel. Uh, but I think it makes a lot of us feel pretty mad. Now, I like to think that one of the successes that we've had with this show has been Talking Pints. A massive cross-section of people who come in and take part in it and speak frankly. Well, I really... I mean, talk about what the Farage. I couldn't believe it. Because this morning, Talking Pints, the concept has made it to the House of Commons. And it happened in no less than the guy that leads the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Have a look at this in Westminster this morning. News is marvellous. I went on it. I went on with, mis- with Mr Farage, and it was called Have a Pint with Nigel or something, and I took along my own um, cider, which we both enjoyed. So I would encourage people to, to watch GB News and to go on it. I, I think the Honourable Gentleman, the member for Nihiling and Anyar, would be a star performer on GB News, and I hope that he will take them uh, up to his farm so that they can watch his lambing in the spring, for which we have specially dedicated recess times to be convenient for him. Having been promoted this morning in the House of Commons by Jacob Rees-Mogg, we're here. The GB News pub is open. It's Talking Pints. And I'm here with somebody who arguably uh, achieved more as a boxer than anybody else born in this country in modern times. I'm joined by Duke McKenzie. Fantastic. Duke, welcome to the programme. I appreciate that. I really do, Nigel. Is it OK to call you Nigel? Of course it is. I'll watch okay, that. Great. Right. Oh, did you? I watched that. I watched you put in bag okay. I remember that very, okay. very well. I've always enjoyed boxing. Right. Um... And you, you know, what got you into it? I'm one of seven boys in my family, and my older brother Clinton, he started us off in boxing, and then my other brother Winston started, and my brother Dudley started, yeah, and then they all started, and it was like the blind leading the blind. And if my older brother would have swung a golf club or been an actor, I'd have followed him (laughs) into that. And uh, my brother was a a hugely successful amateur boxer, Clinton, went to the 76 Olympic Games representing Great Britain. Brother Dudley went to the first World Junior Championships in Yokohama, Japan, age 17, representing Great Britain. My brother Winston also was an England international. My amateur career wasn't really that great in comparison to theirs. I, I never won an Egg Cup as an amateur. I wasn't very good. I didn't have the dedication or the sort of aptitude, really, just to do what, what needed to be done. I used to get off on... Um, my brother. When my brother won, you'd get, like, a trophy... And, um, and badges. So I used to get these badges and put it on my shorts and one thing and another. But then the bell would go and I'd get found out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I didn't really have a great amateur career, but then I was quite tenacious and my brother introduced me to uh, a guy called Mickey Duff, mm. who at the time was what, say, Arsene Wenger was to Arsenal. Mickey Duff was that of the boxing fraternity. 
and he changed my life forever. And then I got a great coach, Colin Smith, who, um, who trained me for a period of time as an amateur, but then Colin went off, and then when I turned pro, I'd had 13 fights before I went back to him. But then I went back to Colin, and I begged him to train me, as I did Mickey Duff, my, my manager, who turned me down initially, and I'd seen every other promoter stroke manager in the country uh, before Mickey Duff would manage me. And um, I became a bit of a stalker, really, to be honest with you. And, I just... and suddenly you were quite good at it. And then all of a sudden, I, uh... well, Mickey took me on this whistle-stop tour of America, and I'm sure that enhanced my, my belief, certainly, of, of in, in, in my ability. And um, he took me everywhere. Like, we boxed in Vegas, Los Angeles, Reno, Atlantic City, New York, Miami. Uh, and then we went all over Europe boxing as well. And then, you know, he had like a domino effect. And the next thing I know, I'd, I'd gone like maybe three, four, five fights unbeaten. Then I, then I boxed for a British championship and I won that. Yeah. And then, um, then I got a European rating to fight Charlie Magri for that European title, mm-hmm. as you just saw there. Yeah. I won the European title. Uh, shortly after that. I think that was my 13th fight, 12th, 13th fight. Then I had several sort of international fights, 10-round fights, uh, a couple of European title defences uh, abroad and both here in, in England. Uh, won them. And the next one, I was like ranked number one in the world. And um, with the WBC, I think WBA rated me. And then I, I got a shot at the IBF flyweight champion, a guy called Rolando Bohol from the Philippines. And then it was like more sort of shock horror for me personally. Um, but my brother Dudley instilled so much confidence in me. If Dudley told me I could have beaten Mike Tyson, I'd have believed him. I had that much confidence in him. And um, I can remember waking up on, on fight day, crying, you know, uncontrollably at, at times because the realisation and the magnitude of the fight that was actually on me at that point, mm. it, was, it was a lot for me to sort of take on board. Anyway, but Dudley turned up and I was fine. And then um, next thing I know, I was like crown the... IBF flyweight champion of the world. Pretty it cool. Was, it was just... It was, Lad from Croydon. It was... Oh, Croydon, Croydon <laughs> born and bred. Still living in Croydon. Um, I've had a fantastic career. And when I look back at my career, sometimes I have to pinch myself because, um, like I say, I'm one of, you know, uh, six boys and one girl in my family. And all of my brothers have had successful careers in one way or another. But I've had a lot of uh, boxers that I know, in my opinion, had more ability than I did or equally, equally the same amount of ability as I did, but never quite made it. So I, I, I'm one of the lucky but guys. But you, th- you won world championships at three different weights. Yeah, I've been... Uh, I, I, I mean, I've, to, to a non-boxing order, yeah. how, how does that work? Yeah, uh, well, I was really, really lucky to be quite tall for my first weight division, flyweight, five foot seven. An average flyweight's five foot two. A big size flyweight is five foot two. I was considered quite a bit of a freak for the weight division that I first boxed in. I was a good-sized bantamweight, that's eight stone six. And, but when I moved through the weight divisions, being able to eat and drink the foods that I, I loved and just to be able to live like a normal human being, my manager would say to me all, all the time, a happy fighter is a good fighter. And once I could eat and drink the foods that I loved mm. and you know, replenish and not have to drain myself to make weight and one thing and another... Um, otherwise, then like, I, otherwise, otherwise, it's like being a jockey and having to starve yourself. Yeah, it's, listen, I've often likened jockeying to being like a professional boxer yeah. because you're constantly on the scales. You're constantly watching your weight and what you eat and what you drink. So, um, but then I moved to Bantamweight and then I was just very, very fortunate. Well, like I said, I picked up another world championship at Bantamweight and that's probably winning the Bantamweight world title out of the three championships that I won. Um, that probably gave me the most satisfaction because I was just... Um, 
a ranked outside. I wasn't even given a hope in hell of going the distance, let alone pulling off a good victory against Gabby Canizales, who was a formidable fighter at the time. And um, But, you know, for 12 weeks, I ate, slept, drunk, walked, talked to him. Never went out my front door unless I was going to the gym. I never got, went out the front door. I was going to do my run in the morning. You know, I was in bed every night at 6 o'clock, even on a summer's evening. And, um, you know, and, and up at 5 o'clock every morning doing my runs. And going, you know, just eating, sleeping, walking, talking, trying not to look boxing, but just applying myself properly. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I, I won the bantamweight championship of the world, and then defended that several times. Uh, lost it, but then every time I lost in a major championship fight, Dudley would say to me, "He'd call me little man." That was like my pet name, family name. He'd say to me, "Little man," he'd say to me, "There's another belt out there for you. You just got to go and get it." And then Dudley would like help me to reapply myself, rededicate myself, uh, get my mind back on the game, and then just do what needed to be done. And I mean, somehow those lighter weight, yeah. Boxing yep. titles don't get quite the same level of fame and glamour mm -hmm. that the heavyweight ones yes. do. Um, because actually, you know, your achievement... Mm. No, I'm being serious. Yeah, I mean, I think... your achievement, as very, very few British boxers ever lived yeah. who've done what you've done, and you were very well known in the sporting world, um, but kind of, I don't think outside of it you perhaps quite got the recognition... Frankly, that you deserve. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's, that's life. It's not something I can change. Um, would I change it? I don't really know. I, I, I fancy myself as a bit of an actor, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask my wife, she'll tell you. <laughs> but no, listen, it's... Uh, in the lighter weight divisions, there's obviously a lot more skill involved. There's yeah, a lot more... And it's faster. It's faster, it's action-packed, and, you know, there's nothing that any other fighter can't do on, on the planet that the lighter weights don't do, and more so even, because they fight at a higher intensity yeah. and a higher work rate. So um, I don't really get too excited now when I watch boxing. It's not really my reality anymore. But you've done commentating. But I do I have done quite a lot of commentating over yeah. the years with Sky and ITV and BBC and um, been all over the world doing it, to be honest with you. So I've had a, I've had a fantastic... And you've come time. out of it. You've come out of it, Duke. You know, it, you appear fairly undamaged by it all. Well, I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yeah, I, I, you know, I used to pride myself on not getting hit, but you can't get in the walk without getting hit. Unfortunately... A lot of boxers do suffer with, um, you know, hard times after their careers. Yeah. You know, it's hard, it's hard to make that transition from, you know, being a world champion one minute and the next minute you're not a world champion and then you've got to come back to reality and get yourself a day job. And, but, you know, I mean, listen, it, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people who've been at the top of their field and suddenly they're not and yeah. age, etc. you know, and they do suffer all sorts of problems. Um, but you're doing your bet with the Ringside Charitable Trust, aren't yes, you? Yes, yes. I'm involved with the Ringside Charitable Trust, who are uh, who have got. They run, or they they're, they're currently funding, um, raising funds and awareness for retired boxers that have fallen on hard times. And there's there, quite a few of them. There are quite a few, and sadly, sadly, there are quite a few boxers that have fallen on hard times. Some really well-known boxers, more well-known than I, I am. Uh, in the boxing in the boxing world, and these guys need help, you know. And I'm really surprised that there isn't enough help within the boxing fraternity. You know, people actually that have made money off of fighters, mm. giving giving money and time back to fighters that desperately need it. So, I've, uh, and are these people who've been damaged perhaps a bit by boxing as well? Uh, I think they've been just been damaged by life. You know, I don't think there's. Um, I don't think there's anybody that's not gone through a divorce or a bereavement yeah. or, or anything like that that hasn't experienced what most boxers do. But boxers have got the adage of having had a really hard career 
on top of just living an everyday life, on top of that, and suffered, you know, with mental health problems. So it's, it's, it's really as close to my heart, the, uh, the Ringside Charitable Trust, and I do whatever I can to help promote their, that organisation to get them as much recognition as possible where they can raise sufficient funds. They're currently trying to raise money for uh, a care home for retired boxers, specifically for retired boxers. Yep. That they're trying to raise money for to get that all together so boxers have got a place to go, go, go and live, I should say. And, um, you know, there's boxers I know now, not on a personal level, that are homeless, that are living on the streets. And, you know, these guys have just, they're falling apart and they need help. And the only way you can do that is by raising awareness, you know, gaining enough sort of capital so that we can get, you know, all come together as a, as a boxing family, if you, if you will, and, uh, and look after these guys. Now, I drive in through South London right. every day over Crystal Palace Hill. Yeah. So I drive pretty close to, often straight past, the Duke Mackenzie Gymnasium. Oh, oh the jukebox. And uh, I've not yet been in. No, you've never, you've never turned up, Nigel. No, I'm well, I'm I'm waiting for you to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> it's all non-contact. Well, it's all a bit of fun. It's just keep fit. I mean, this is interesting. So what's the age range of people that turn up there? So my youngest is sort of seven, eight years old. Mm -hmm. And we do just boxing classes, you know, just non-contact boxing classes. It's just to keep fit, predominantly. And um, my youngest is, is, is eight. My oldest is probably about, I'd say, 78. Wow. Yeah. I love your advertising blurb. Whether you don't know a meat hook from a right hook. <laughs> my daughter wrote that. Oh, it's very good. Yeah, my daughter Oh, you're a self-confessed pro. Yeah. We'll show you how. So this is about using boxing... Just as, as, a mean, as, as it means to get fit. Just uh, purely as a keep fit programme. Yep. Uh, anybody can do it. Like I say, from 70 to, to 78 or 88 or 98, uh, I've put together a boxing programme where people can just come along, use the gym on a daily basis. It's a members-only gym, by the way. Yep. And Because uh, I know who's coming in, who's coming out. Yep. And, and I'm there every day and I, and, I do, and I plan my trade. It's a lot of fun. You should come down sometime. Well, I tell you what, I will pop in. I will pop I'm going to hold you to that. No, what he probably is, you know. <laughs> but... The other thing, Duke, I'm really keen to talk to you about, and, and you have spoken about this yep. before, is, you know, you're born in the early 60s in yep. Croydon, and sport, and I'm you know, a year younger than you, sport is everything, isn't it? Sport yep. is everywhere. Yep. Now, what do young boys want to do, and girls too? We want to play sport. We want yep. to play football. We want to play cricket. We want to, you know, join the local rugby club. We want to, you know, go to a gym and do boxing or whatever it is. And kind of sport was everywhere, and kind of, we all played sport. I went, nearly all of us played sport. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to some level. Um, but you've got some thoughts on kids and sport now and what's going on. Sure. I mean, you know, if the... When, we, when I was a kid, you know, there was, like you say, there was, there was youth clubs everywhere. On every street corner, there was a youth club. So you didn't get into... It wasn't, you know, I'm sure drugs were there. I'm sure smoking was there and drink was there. And all the bad habits that kids have today, they were all there then. But kids had something to do then. You know, going down to a local sports club uh, when I was a kid, they had boxing, football, you name every sport under the book. Boxing, football, tennis, you name it, snooker. Yeah. You could go there all day, pay your subs, and you could spend all day there just doing what you loved, and you'd keep yourself out of trouble. <coughs> you know, I train a lot of kids in my gym, and they come in all the time, and I'm not going to say that they, 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 uh, they don't want to do it. They, they're almost malnourished for it. They love to come in and just work out. Because you've out. given them the opportunity that well, is not available. Because I've given them... Yeah, exactly, Nigel. I've given them the opportunity to come in. Are the schools not getting this right? They're not getting it right. You know, there was a time when I worked in several schools training young kids, but it seems to have died off now. 
And why they don't bring back schoolboy boxing, I don't know, because that's how it was when I was a kid. Yeah. You wasn't going down your local school for a punch-up with anybody, because, you know, they had, they had boxers in, the, in their school. So that, just, that was just... And it a, also, I guess, teaches self-discipline. It, gives, it teaches you life skills. Boxing really teaches you life skills. It teaches you almost how to be a man. It teaches you how to carry yourself because, you know, if you can handle yourself, if you can look after yourself in a boxing ring, you're not going to go down the road looking for trouble. You're not going to start a fight. And you're certainly not going to, you know, uh, pick a fight with anybody because you would be more intent to walk away from a fight or even break fights up. But today, sadly, it's not like that. Is it because kids are playing computer games all day? Or... Yep. Yep. Kids are on the computers all day. And, you know, they've got mobile phones and there's all these different distractions for them. And it is, it's just they get it so easy. There's no real discipline involved. And that's a really sad part. So what do we have to do, Jim, to get kids back training, playing sport? What do we have well, to they, do? They've got to introduce schoolboy boxing back into schools. OK. You know, for male and female, because, you know, yeah. women do boxing yeah, as well yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's worldwide. And if they, I'm sure, if they reintroduce it into schools, you know, even colleges even... There'll be a, a huge uptake because boxing is probably as popular in this country as football is. You know, you get massive crowds for, for all the major fights now. And, you know, you can stream it on TV. Yeah, it's, and... it's interesting. I've been to a few fights recently. And I, was, right. I was at the Joshua fight and I've been with Derek Chisora a couple of sure. fights. And, 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 and I love the evening out. And you're right, they're big crowds. Yeah. The trouble is, you know, it used to be accessible on the BBC yeah. or on ITV. It was on you know, Harry Carpenter, yeah, yeah, sure. Red Gutteridge and all yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and now it's, you know, quite an expensive thing to watch on Sky, isn't it? Yeah. But despite that, you still think boxing is very popular? Boxing is popular. I don't think... I, don't think, I think if, if, if they ban boxing or there's no more schoolboy boxing, then boxing will grow underground and that's when it become very dangerous. It, you know, boxing's a very... Um, it's such an intense sport, not only mentally but physically. So without the right super, super supervision, you know, it's going to fall by the wayside and you can get hurt, yeah. very seriously hurt. Well, I'll tell you what, Duke, amazing career. Thank you. You know, I was a fan of yours all those years ago. I used to watch you religiously and good luck with all you're doing today and thank you for joining us here. Thank you for inviting me on. That was Duke McKenzie on Talking Pines. Great stuff. <laughs> OK, we're coming towards the end of the show, but it is time for Barrage the Farage. Yes, where you send in your questions that I do not get pre-sight of. So here goes. A viewer, anonymous, that always worries me, asks, why are the government not recognising natural immunity in relation to COVID? Well, it would seem that we all have to be jabbed and then we have to be jabbed again. And then we have to get a booster. And in six months' time, they'll tell us we have to have another booster and then probably next Christmas, another booster too. I have to say, I was all for having the vaccine, uh, and I went and got it at uh, Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park, okay. is where I, where I went for mine. Um, I, I was all for it. Uh, but I, I, I do, yes, as you say, it, it's as if the natural immunity bar argument never seems to get make, made. And, and hopefully, Omicron, which everyone's now saying, does not bring with it serious symptoms of very many people. Hopefully, that will give us a great degree of natural immunity. At least, I hope so. Gareth asks me, did you do anything else with Donald Trump last week other than the interview, like a game of golf or a meal? Well, uh, number one, um, I would never disclose uh, anything privately uh, that was said or done with Donald Trump. Um, but actually, no, there wasn't time for much more than we did. It was pretty much a quick in and a quick out 
regrettably, but I can't wait to go back to Mar-a-Lago. I love it there. Marilyn asks, how do you deal so well with jet lag? I don't believe in jet lag. I mean, if you've gone to the West Coast, right, and it's eight hours, you will get jet lag. But frankly, given the sort of life that I've lived, you know, getting up at ridiculous hours of the morning, uh, some nights going to bed at eight o'clock, other nights going to bed at three o'clock the next morning, I've never found jet lag to be anything of a problem from the East Coast at all. Bonnie asks me, who is your secret crush? No answer. No, can't do that. Not going to deal with that. Because if I said anything, it wouldn't be secret now, would it? Thanks, everybody. Um, I hope you found the debate on drugs interesting. Um, if the government were really serious about this problem, uh, they wouldn't be making promises they simply can't keep. <laughs>